0: Welcome back to the program. For many of us, we think we know a lot about American history, about the events that shaped the formation of the republic. And while that knowledge might get you an audition for Jeopardy, at its root sometimes, it's also true that everything we think we know about certain events is wrong. Essentially what that means, and maybe it's even a factor in what's gone so wrong today, is that we tend to know only surface. That when we drill down to historical events, only then, do we find that the facts, the nuance, the subtlety, and the psychology are what really matters and really makes up the historical ripples that we are living with today? Such is the story of the Salem Witch Trials, as told now by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Stacy Schiff. She won the Pulitzer Prize for her book Cleopatra, and now she pivots to 1692 Salem to bring us The Witches, Salem 1692. Stacey Schiff, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Jeff. A natural transition from Cleopatra to to Salem in 1692. You
1: you've never noticed that inherent similarity <laughs> yeah. between first century B.C. Alexandria and 17th century Massachusetts. Uh,
0: talk about cognitive dissonance.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know there was there was something there both in terms of dusting off the myths. I think our myths about mm-hmm. Cleopatra were fairly are fairly well 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 enforced and and with Salem too. I think we all. I think we know what happened and we're we're fairly wide of the mark in our in our conceptions.
0: One of the things about the Salem story is that we tend to think of it as a religious story. In fact, it was very much a political story. Talk about that first.
1: Yes, the politics here were one of the things that, that deeply surprised me. There's By 1692, the colony has been living for three years without a charter. Um, and in 1689, in fact, in a really stunning coup, They've overthrown their royal governor. They've sent him sailing back to England. It's a sort of dress rehearsal for the American Revolution. And so, the, so, so the witch trials are preceded by these three very dislocated years where there's a certain amount of anxiety in the air about what kind of government uh, will be formed and whether there will be repercussions from this deeply insubordinate act um, on the part from the crown. Um, they're living in fear that an Anglican governor is perhaps about to be imposed upon them, and. Just as the trials are, just as the witchcraft, the witchcraft is broken out. A new governor will arrive to establish a witchcraft court. In fact, and the 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 uncertainty of those years and the need to buttress the legitimacy of his administration will play will play a big role in what happens.
0: There's also a sense in the community. Of a tremendous amount of anxiety and uncertainty, part of it because of the this political framework, this sense that, that things are changing, nobody's quite sure what's going to happen next, and the anxiety that it's produced in some ways contributes to the panic that ultimately evolves
1: you know there's a really interesting set of parallels between with the imagery um, the political imagery of these you know red coated invaders and coming from the crown. And the devil, the diabolical imagery, which comes up with the witchcraft, which is all about red books and you know cra- and tall-crowned hats, which is what the New Englanders tend to say the devil is wearing. So there's definitely you know a, 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 an anxiety that seeps into the the groundwater. And that and that surfaces in this really you know sort of interesting but, some, but familiar way. Everyone here has an agenda. It's really I mean there's a political agenda on the part of the authorities. There's a ministerial agenda, um, and there's obviously a, a village agenda as well in terms of the accusations.
0: These agendas all seem to come together in a way that is very volatile because this whole story, is as you tell it, happens so quickly.
1: I think that's another one of our, our misconceptions. I mean, there are two on that one. I think we we, we call it the Salem Witch Trials, but in fact, um, much of Essex County, much of the entire county of Massachusetts is affected. with the greatest number um, of accusations actually in Andover, which has the greatest number of casualties, not Salem. And indeed, it moves at this galloping pace. It begins in February or end of January. It's unclear. And by the fall, it's over. So, and, and it ends begins with a bang and it sort of ends with a whimper. And it's really nine months of terror. and that's and that's it. The entire astonishing episode wraps up in that in that short period of time.
0: It's almost like dry tinder that is ignited initially by these two girls that are afflicted and and what it sets in motion.
1: I mean that's a very it's a very good point because when you start to read um, the court testimony, you really see that um, ancient history is being dredged up here. I mean, this witchcraft was a fabulously useful thing to discharge old um, grievances and old unfinished business and old grudges and a lot of decades old pieces of litigation, uh, family disputes, intergenerational problems comes to light in the course of the testimony. You get people saying, you know, 30 years ago, um, you know, this woman put a curse on my child. You get a tremendous amount of um, of ancient history here.
0: Why is—talk a little about why that is, the the anger that seems to have been seething below the surface about all that was changing at the time.
1: Well, I, I, I first should probably say that—and um, and this was to the historian's delight, I would add— the early New Englander was a very litigious character, and these people really like to go to court. There are no lawyers by the way in, in Massachusetts bay at this point so there's a lot of court ca- there are a lot of court cases, but they are adjudicated by professionals who are not lawyers but there's so there's an enormous amount of um of just ill will um it 's a very fragile world. one is at constant battle um to make sure that there's enough firewood to make it through the winter. Uh, that the crops don't fail, and that one has enough land to farm. And given how uh, how a very difficult existence was, you really didn't want the neighbor's pig rooting in your peas, or you didn't really you really didn't want him claiming half of your farmland. So um, so there's, there are a lot of just village tensions, one against the other. The ministry feels itself a little bit under fire at this point, um, especially with the political situation. And the authorities are themselves attempting to prop up this new this new regime. So the girls, I should add, by the way, the, the girls who are supposed to be bewitched or afflicted, or afflicted in some way, they're suffering from something rather terrible, which is making them convulse and scream and interrupt ministers and, and rise, are suffering some kind of anxiety that we really can't diagnose at this distance. But the forces acting on them would have been immense, both in terms of um, spiritual strains, physical strains. They spent an entire winter indoors um, working. And um, it's a pretty bleak existence all around.
0: Part of the mythology revolves around the Puritanism of the time. Talk about that. What, what is and isn't so in that regard?
1: Well, you know, an interesting way this incident gets used um, by the ministry, who embrace it to some extent. Once, once witchcraft is diagnosed, I should say, um, it's sort of off to the races. Once once it's been made clear that this is witchcraft, everyone seems to wonder about the person next to him or her in meeting. Everyone seems to be able to resurrect um, a, a puzzle in his past, which, of course, he can now solve through witchcraft. But the ministry um, inflames that feeling, partly because there is a sort of conspiracy-minded sense here that you feel you're under siege, and so you're looking, for, um, you're looking for a predator, you're looking for a threat to the community, but also because you can wring a certain amount of, of evangelical mileage out of um, the descent of the devil, uh, which was in cahoots with the devil. And if the devil has chosen to touch down in Massachusetts, that is only proof, as far as the ministers are concerned, um, of Massachusetts piety, it's proof that you are, in fact, the elect. Where, where would the devil want to go, Cotton Mather essentially asks, but where he's hated most. And it's further proof that um, the Second Coming is at hand because this presages um, the Second Coming, which the ministers have been, or many ministers have been predicting for many years. So there's a, there's a certain embrace of this, um, of this awful moment on their parts.
0: To what extent was the New World framework of this, the New World setting of this, a, a key element of it? Is this something that could have happened somewhere else?
1: That's a great question. It had happened elsewhere in in different form. Of course, there have been there have been hundreds of years of um, severe witch persecutions, um, both in, in the British Isles and on the continent. What's interesting about 1692 in America is that, of course, first of all, we think of this as this enlightened biblical commonwealth, not the kind of place that persecutes innocents. But that by 1692, witchcraft is pretty much, not debunked, but uh, the the skeptics have had their way with witchcraft in Europe and even in England. The Massachusetts settlers are unaware of that. They're in a bit of a time warp vis-a-vis the old world, largely because there are no newspapers in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, And the information that comes to them comes to them essentially through the ministry, who, of course, have not allowed any of those skeptics' opinions to make their way to Massachusetts. So it's almost as if they're operating with antiquated information. And the books that they use to diagnose the witchcraft and to figure out how to adjudicate this terrible epidemic are books that no one would have any longer consulted in England. So it's just, it's a, it's a moment sort of out of time. It's like a last gasp in a funny way of a medieval world.
0: There's also a, a conflict in some ways that is not dissimilar from some of what we see today between urban and rural, that this didn't take place in, in a monolithic location, that there was the village and the town, not, on, not dissimilar from the city and, and rural life. And that created tensions.
1: Yes, they, you know, there are two Salem's which makes it very confusing for the reader. There's Salem Village, which is a very tiny rural, rural community of farmers. And there's Salem Town, which is one of the oldest um, and actually most civilized um, t- full towns in America at that time. Um, and they're a few miles from each other. And the village does not have authorities of its own. It, it, it answers to the Salem Town authorities. And there's a huge amount of tension there, there's, a, there's tension over taxation, there's tension over who should, up, who should keep up the roads, um, there's tension over who should guard watch over whom, because the villagers feel very much that they're on the frontier, and the town should be taking care of them, they shouldn't be dispatched to the town um, to look for any boats that might be arriving with full of nefarious Catholics, or whomever or anyone is dreading at that particular moment. So yes, there's been a huge conflict between the two, and, and the witchcraft will break out. The, the, the village has, has been, the town has almost tried to wash its hands of the villagers and their antipathies for years, um, but they will have to ride into town in late January or early February to say, we think we have, um, we have a witchcraft epidemic, witchcraft case, can you help us uh, figure out how to regulate it? Could you please prosecute the following three people when the first three names are named?
0: In many ways, it starts out as a story about the women, but but as the trial comes to be, it it morphs into something else. It's more about patriarchy in some ways.
1: Oh, absolutely, and and that's for me. That's one of the great surprises of the of the story. It starts out as a sort of basic case of bewitchment with three people, three sort of obvious suspects are drawn in, and they are exactly who you would have expected: a woman who's litigious, a beggar woman, and a slave. And it's simple witchcraft it, by the classic 17th century definition. And before a few months are out, it suddenly has morphed into this diabolical conspiracy, which is not being led by women. But of course, if you have a conspiracy, it's still a, gen, it's still a male world. It's run by a man. And at the, at the head of this conspiracy, um, a former Salem village minister is said to be um, running things. And he's the diabolical mastermind behind a plot to subvert not only the new government, but also all the churches of the colony. And he's, he's, his name is George Burroughs. He had been a minister in Salem Village and left on very contentious terms years earlier.
0: Talk a little bit about the trials themselves.
1: Well, you know, the interesting thing about the trials is that um, the magistrates are doing the best job they could possibly be doing. They're very, they're very conscientious here about following the law to the letter, um, witchcraft is a capital crime in the 17th century. They, are not, they haven't invented this. They're not being superstitious here. This is a religious crime, um, which, they, which has been prosecuted before, although never so mercilessly, and there had never been so much of it. And they're following, they're following all of the procedures properly. The one sticking point and the question that they keep asking is about spectral evidence which is essentially evidence that is invisible to anyone who isn't bewitched. So you can imagine if someone comes into court and says, you know, I saw you pummeling this poor child and, and I'm bewitched, and no one else saw it, but that word can't, no one can trump that kind of rapport, then there's no alibi. So the interesting thing about these courts, which are, except for the spectral evidence, operating as any other standard court of the day would have operated, um, is that there 's no way out there 's a hundred percent conviction rate? Right. There is no way to avoid the accusation once the girls the the bewitched girls have leveled it at you the The suspect had very few rights. I should also add and this was true in England as well at the time there 's hearsay is allowed in court. no one represents the the accused. her word is or his word is not given under oath, whereas those who testify against him or her is given under oath. So there are some disadvantages. And the courtroom is a sort of riotous place. It's a very disorderly place where people can yell out what, what they think of the suspect.
0: Talk a little bit about researching this and what what you had to find and uncover and what was available.
1: Well, I guess there are two. Um, there's, a, there's a wealth of information. First of all, there's a, there's a fabulous amount of information. Um, new material, secondary sources on the on the trials and a great number of terrific books. There are fabulous um, diaries of the time and there are some great court um, documents of the time. We have the witchcraft um, papers from the hearings. We do not have um, the papers from the trials which have mysteriously disappeared. Um, so that's one big lacuna. The other big missing piece is that we have nothing from the afflicted girls, the bewitched girls themselves. So we have their words as they come to us from the men who are taking down the court testimony, and we have their words, interestingly, as they speak to the devil, because they often report conversations that they've had with the devil when he's tried to recruit them or when he's he's tormented them. And otherwise, we do not have their voices. So there are two big things that are missing here, Um, and one has to work around those. I spend a lot of time... um, reading anything that a 17th-century New Englander himself would have read um, or that a 17th-century New Englander wrote. And all of the diaries, as many of the Puritan sermons as I could read, and believe me, that's a lot. (laughs) Um, And the court documents from the quarterly courts, which gives you a really granular um, and fascinating sense of what New England life was like, what the stress points were, what, uh, what... one person held against the other, what he took him to court for, um, how much drunkenness there was, how trespass was a constant, um, was a constant offense, how one felt really had his rights and his, and his space constantly infringed upon.
0: And as you look back at all of this, what do you think was, was the seminal part of this that, that still does ripple out today, that we still see the consequences of in some limited way today?
1: Well, I think um, first of all, I think there's a strand of our Puritan forefathers that we tend to forget until we look at something like this and we re- and we see the modern resonance. I mean, this this does leave uh, quite a quite a trail across our history. But it's really useful to have a Salem in, in our past. It's you know, it's 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 good to have as a cautionary tale, a moment where justice goes awry, where the state does something egregious, seemingly in the name of God. Um, it's only so that you don't go down that road again. You don't want to over-prosecute. You you want to question your preconceptions. Um, you want to hold this up um, as an example of why you should hold to your sanity when everything, mm-hmm. everyone around you seems
0: to be losing his. And where did the misconception emerge about burning versus hanging?
1: You know, I, I would not be the first person to say this. It seems to come from, it's really fascinating, it seems to come from the 18th century, when, um, when slavery becomes such an issue, and um, I'm sorry, the 19th century, when slavery becomes such an issue, and in the 1800s, the South basically needs a, something with which they can um, bludge in the North, and so they say, you know, yes, we may have slaves, but you burned witches. And they they keep repeating this. There's this wonderfully inflammatory rhetoric about your witch burners. Oh, you New Englanders, all you do is burn witches. How can you possibly attack our ways of life? And that seems to have stuck. It's also true that witches burned in Europe, and so it's possible that that's where the idea comes from. But these witches were were all of them, unfortunately, hanged publicly at, at executions that were extremely well attended, the idea being, of course, um, to educate and to create a spectacle and an example of these people.
0: And at the end of the day, 19 people were hung. Nin-
1: 19 people were hanged. One person, um, as many of us remember from the crucible, one person is, is crushed under stones because he has, Giles um, Corey, he has refused to enter a plea in court as to his guilt or his innocence. And the um, the punishment for that was this ancient medieval practice where you were laid out, spread-eagled in the jail yard, and weights were piled upon you until, you until you actually entered your plea, which in his case he does not. So he's the 20th, 20th victim.
0: Stacy Schiff, the book is The Witches, Salem, 1692, out from Little Brown. Stacy, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It was a, it was a pleasure.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.